Hello and welcome to 2022. Well, at the time I'm recording this, New Year's parties are being downsized or banned all around the world. But as an Instec podcast listener, brimming with innovation and energy, I've no doubt you found your own way to celebrate the arrival of the new year. Matthew Grant here. Now, of course, if you are a regular listener, you will know that every few months, Robin and I take a break from asking everyone else what is going on in the world and reflect back on what we're seeing and what it all means. If you are one of our many listeners joining us from outside of the UK, then be prepared for some rather British understatement in this episode. Robin was still a bit grumpy about all the parties and dinners that got cancelled in the last week when we recorded this, and he was showing off some rather alarming weaponry when we started speaking. But we found a few things to celebrate and be optimistic for the year ahead by the end, so all ended well. Thank you for all your support in so many ways in the last year. We've just reached 150 companies we are working with and our network of people taking advantage of all of our free content and informing us of what is going on is into the multiples of thousands. Coming soon is our 1000s fan award for all our guests that have racked up more than a thousand downloads of their podcast episode. Google Kevin Kelly and 1000 fans to see what is significant about that number. Well, here we go. On with the Robin and Matthew show. Robin, we've uh, we've broken off from our Christmas preparations to catch up, but it looks like you are ensconced in your brick fireplace. It's become quite famous through our live events. But is that like a rifle propped up behind you? Have you become a prepper now amongst everything else you're doing? It's the air rifle. It's been a very gloomy year, Matthew. You know, I, uh, uh, no, it's got nothing to do with me and my state of mind. I, I've, I can see out the window my bird table and having painstakingly put all that, lots of nice little fat balls for the, for the birds, there's a rat eating them. So if I, if I suddenly sort of put the finger up and ask you to press hold, it's because I absolutely insist on bringing this thing down before Christmas. We've had many things on the podcast the last two years. I don't think we've had anybody threatening to use a rifle on them. So I guess as we're friends, hopefully I'll be pointed away from the screen on this one. But on that theme about gloom and the year behind us, you know, how, how has it been if you take a step back from that and uh, look it through the, the lens of some kind of positive impact? Is there anything we can be hopeful about? I don't think it's been a great year for InsureTech. And that sounds like a really strange thing to say, because if you read the headlines, uh, the amount of money invested in, in InsureTech this year is running at whatever it is, 10 billion, and there's still a quarter to go. And, and there's never been more written about InsureTech. Um, but but my, my observation, and, and I think you would share it, is you know, that's all going to unicorn hunters. Uh, and, and increasingly, this is about hundreds of millions of dollars in, in check sizes being given to um, not that many companies. It sort of belies the fact that at a early stage level, life has become incredibly difficult. It's quite difficult to raise early stage money. I think you can get angel money, but the gap between angel money and institutional money is getting wider. And the insurance industry itself has largely stopped doing accelerators and labs and things with a few honorable exceptions. So getting started is is really, really hard. And I think some of that early vibrancy and, and excitement and, and new ideas, new things being tried has, has been lost at the expense of big check sizes. It has been a strange year, hasn't it? As you said, it, I mean, it's never easy to get that angel funding, but there are still people out there. The UK, you know, it's quite tax efficient to invest in those early businesses. You know, Cedars is quite good as one of the crowdfunding platforms. But it does seem to be there's that problem, which is for people who are looking to get there. I mean, what we'd call in the UK, 
maybe even Series A um, in the US because they're just dealing with such larger sizes of investment. They probably would call it late seed, but you're coming coming in at sort of one to three million pounds or dollars. Really, really hard for people, isn't it, at that point? Because in that stage, they may not have any clients, they may have some clients, but actually often it's just two or three people they might know who sort of helped them out or are willing to take an early stage risk, but it's still not a sort of fully proven market fit. So you see this real struggle. And I, one of the other things we're seeing, of course, is there are far fewer um, of the corporates that are actually investing, whether as incubators or accelerators or anything else or labs. But that was a big, big part of, wasn't it, five years ago, if you look back at what was helping people get started is they could work their way through different organizations and survive and then hopefully find their clients and grow the business. That's just not existing anymore either. No, there's no concept of a POC these days. I mean, they're very rare. So if you have a good idea that you need to prove, I don't know how you do. And, and then the money naturally requires a certain level of validation. So, so they're all looking for something that has one or two, ideally, you know, sort of big logos attached to them and, and, a, and something between a quarter and a million dollars worth of revenue. And then you can go and start raising some money. But if nobody will talk to you when you're pre-revenue, how do you get to that point? You know, I make this observation in the sense of you don't sort of, you don't sow anything and you don't tend your crops. You have nothing to harvest. And it's not a problem now because there's some really, really good businesses coming through that were started five years ago. But what will we harvest in five years' time if you can't get started now? I, I think we're going to lose a lot of really quite good early stage businesses that had sort of got going with some angel money, but, but can't get through the next stage. And that really worries me. It's not all doom and gloom, but the, the things that worry me, that's the thing that worries me the most. But I suppose somebody that was a bit more uh, aggressive it might look at it and say, well, that is, that's a natural cycle of the evolution of the startup world. I mean, you get people starting up, they've got good ideas, but there's a sort of evolutionary element to this, or it's a Darwinian element, which is they don't survive and, and maybe that's okay. Whereas the question is more that can be done to nurture those companies or are the there's sort of large incumbents and those with the money just not being adventurous enough to work more closely with some of these organizations that are out there? Well, I think that's a, a very valid observation in the sense that there is a Darwinian feature to this. And, and also there were a lot of very poor businesses in the early days of insure tech that didn't deserve to, to succeed. But we're struggling right now. If I think if you were the incumbent industry and you were really good at your own innovation, then I think your observation is valid. But I think the the incumbent industry is incredibly dependent, if it wants to innovate at all, uh, on external sources of, in, of innovation. And I agree with the Darwinian thing, but but I, I then say to myself, so how will you um, go about um, launching new products? How will you underwrite better with new and exciting data sets? You know, how how will you properly digitize your business if you're not that keen or able to do it yourself? I mean, th- 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 I think these external influences are very important you're looking very low robin we've got uh, just a few minutes to get you back on your enthusiastic side uh, so let's see if we can un- unpick that a little bit but i mean the reality is people don't they don't like buying insurance they don't want to buy insurance i mean just to take one very personal example my daughter lost her phone actually it was stolen couple of weeks ago she didn't have insurance on the phone when she kind of realized how much she had to go and buy to get a new one she then took out insurance for sort of 10 pounds a month on the phone and she now buys insurance i think you can use that example for many people where they're not required to buy insurance for regulatory purposes such as you are for your car or you go and take out a mortgage you've got to 
by household insurance. But don't you think that's part of the problem? It's just people just fundamentally don't want to buy insurance because they just haven't got an appreciation of risk and it's just not the thing they want to spend their time doing. So if you're trying to create new products, you're almost bound to fail unless it's something that is actually driven by regulation or something's changed and people then realize they need to buy insurance. I mean, I, this is going off at a tangent, but but this is why I like embedded insurance so much. It's the one thing that seems to me to um, uh, assist in dealing with the whole line of inquiry that you've just raised, because I think you do buy insurance if it's made incredibly easy for you and and that some sort of point of sale someone says do you want to do you want to buy insurance for that and it's only this uh, and you can do so at an incredibly cost effective way because you're not running large value chains then um it's not difficult to see why across the board embedded is is you know one of the hottest topics in town because it's the one area that is starting to kind of close the gap between this sort of philosophical divide that you and I have um on this one issue it is although the motivations to sell it have to be aligned so uh, I can't remember whose podcast this was on, but it is a good, interesting example of Volvo where they're offering this monthly contract where they give you a Volvo and you get your servicing included in your insurance and everything else. At the end of the year, or even maybe more frequently, you can hand it back and get a different Volvo. And I think BMW tried it. And the big challenge is that the dealers make all their money on the servicing. They're not motivated to sell this. They'd much rather sell you the car and get the, the revenue back from the servicing. So I think it does fit, but it needs to make sure you've got the motivation in place from the retailer to be able to go and go and sell it. And of course, and it has to be fair as well. And it has to be has to be priced competitively because the problem with embedded insurance, you don't know what the comparisons are. So you either accept it from a convenience purchase or you basically go and look somewhere else, in which case you're back into that whole sort of disconnection between buying the product and then getting the insurance. And the chances are people give up or forget. You know, you're not cheering me up one bit. Uh, um, but your, your observation, which I think is also right and also doesn't cheer me up, is that a, a lot of the insure tech money is effectively being spent on things which are much more closely aligned to how you save money and how you make yourself operationally more efficient. There's nothing wrong with that. Why is that where the money is being spent and, and, you know, and what's the outcome of that? Well, because the business case is so straightforward. I was out in California a few weeks ago talking about remote claims assessment and that, that's where you, people are being allowed to use their cameras to take photographs of claims and the information goes back to an adjuster based in the office and they can do a triage and you know, where there's an obvious loss and they can settle. There's a massive cost saving of sending somebody out. And so if you are an organization like Planer or Wilbur who issue these apps to be able to go and do that, they make a very clear cost case. You know, it'll cost you X to license our app and you'll make a saving of 10X because you don't have to send anybody out as an adjuster to go and look at it. And so I, that area, to me, uh, from a point of view of implementation and anybody in these big organizations who has to get approval, which is often you know, the barrier, people might want it, but they have to basically get somebody to free up a budget, can make a very clear case. So I think that's one area you're seeing it. Um, the other one, you know, both you and I have separately gone and, and commissioned our crowdsourcing of our own themes for this year, which we'll come and talk about. But the one of the ones Rebecca has been doing for us is actually talking to our members about all the different things they're interested in. And the one that's come out top is data ingestion and extraction. Now, that is not the most exciting thing in the world. Five years ago, had you stood up at some InsureTech conference and said, I'm going to build an application that does ingestion and extraction of data, you would have probably been 
you know four o'clock in the afternoon when everybody had left but nonetheless it's you know it's the most the most popular theme there's cost savings on there we did the report on it which people were really interested in so i think it's just a reality that if you can save money on things people get a business case for it and uh, and, and we're interested in trying to solve the problems and those problems are actually still quite difficult to get right as well so it's not like someone's figured it out and you can then move on i think it's also part of a growing industry um, realization that many of the things that we're talking about um, as exciting shiny new future for insurance depend on sorting your data out um, and, and we wrote about uh, algorithms at the end of the year and we're going to write about them again next month but, but most of that was making the observation that it's all very well uh, getting carried away with the opportunity that algorithms provide to, to automate things but if your data isn't in sufficient shape then it's not much you can do. And I do, I do think that one of the things that has happened and which causes this sort of slightly uh, inward-looking uh, view of life uh, right now is that in, unless you sort your data out, then then you are locked out from so many of these opportunities that we're talking about, You know, whether it be parametric or whether it be embedded or whether it be new products. They're, they're all a function of being able to, um, what I call data mastery. If you haven't got data mastery, then you can't do them. So uh, I would I would expect a lot of money to be spent on that from most insurance companies in the next two to three years. And 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 then not not you know people quickly default at this point to kind of machine learning and AI and you know I'm not sure that's the answer either. It's much more a matter of of kind of working out what you've got and how to get it into some sort of reusable shape and then on an ongoing basis be, be, be able to kind of update that information wherever you source it from no absolutely spot on i mean just one example is the head of data science that on second thoughts best not to name that company told me not so long ago at one of our dinners that they had looked at using machine learning for commercial specialty is one example and realized that you just couldn't use machine learning on those kind of complex risks because there's, there's such a variety in the underlying property and everything else so so i think to your point algorithms and you'll be glad to know that came second on our on our survey of our members of what they're thinking about for next year so definitely more to talk about on there but the point there is it's it's not so much about getting data to do individual point underwriting which is where people i think have been looking at and struggling at for the last five years it's much more about how do you optimize your portfolio and automate decision making when it's it's good enough it doesn't have to be perfect but at a portfolio level you can accept more uncertainty but if you ha- if you haven't got enough data to even allow you to do that then either you should just give up with your algorithmic underwriting or you're going to start getting some very weird results because the data is inaccurate and, and once you let things happen automatically and don't have checks on it then that's where all sorts of nasty problems occur as you know i have been collecting in predictions from 15 industry experts and 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 I'd like to put it on record how much we thank them because they were some incredibly senior and influential people um including um, our very own Paolo Cuomo in that and his observation was the way we do machine learning uh is going to start changing because we spent a lot of money trying to use it as a data ingestion tool and trying to improve the quality of um, 
scanning and, and OCRing such that we can just stick any document in its way and it will regurgitate it in some structured format at sort of 98% accuracy. After all the money that's been spent, we haven't got that level of accuracy whatsoever. And we're going to completely rethink the way that we do machine learning. We're going to start looking at how we might use it for exception underwriting. You know, why was that priced in that way? He, he called it uh, machine learning in the loop, robots in the loop, he called it, which is uh, you know, I thought it was a very nice observation, and it, and it goes to show that, that that this is the value of learning, right? I mean, people have tried to use these things over a few years, and they're starting to work out where they play best and, and, and where they don't play best, and, and starting to implement them in, in not the same places that they started off at. Yeah, I mean, you've almost flipped it around, haven't you? You've moved from that automated use of the, the analytics to actually calling out the exceptions. And, and actually enhancing what the, the underwriter is doing. But you're talking about underwriters. It, it just reminds me of the whole area around brokerage. And you've, you've seen quite a lot of difference. I think it kind of comes through in your predictions around the role of brokers. Again, if we go back five years ago, people were talking about you know, disrupting brokers and taking brokers out of the loop. Certainly, my experiences have been when we're talking to people now about who they want to get their message out to. A lot of it is they actually want to educate the brokers so they can start selling some of these new products because they understand them and they see how they can fit with their clients. But did that come through as part of the the, um, the predictions? It did. We had two brokers with predictions, but the, the one that made me sit up and think was Sasha Bukerovich, head of all things underwriting at Aon. If anything was entitled to a decent valuation, it was something that was properly disruptive. Uh, and from a broker point of view, they don't really see very much and haven't seen very much that they recognize as a threat, you know, that are still doing things in fundamentally the same way at, at Aon. And, and that's because nothing has come along that makes them go, wow, you know, if we don't sort ourselves out in no time at all, then these terrible things are going to happen to us. And um, that seems like a bit of a shame to me that, you know, five years in, um, we haven't found uh, a way to threaten the brokers in any way. And I don't mean that because I've, I've you know, got lots of nice friends who work for brokers, but but you would have, you would think that there were ways in which we could have improved some aspects of our distribution. And, and, and again, I go back to embedded because it's one way in which is, you know, which is starting to happen. But I still get worried about our ability to properly service small businesses um, to make the use of parametric insurance outside of CAT because in in some cases, I think the brokers are holding us back, and then that's not widely felt. But but there were some areas where I would have hoped to see the brokers disrupted a bit more by now. There is some disruption happening on the retail side. I think the where people are looking at is on the small business side. I mean, the UK is tends to be moving faster in terms of people using aggregators and going online. You know, state of the art in the US for how you disrupt retail insurance is still how fast somebody on a lead generation sort of company can get you on the phone to go and sell you insurance when you've gone online to go and inquire about a price. I mean, they're way behind and there are reasons from a regulatory point of view for that. But if you look at other themes out there, just trying to you know, see if I can get us heading up in a positive trajectory in terms of what's happening. What about the area of tech enabled MGAs? In fact, even more broadly, just MGAs as a whole, there seems to be a lot of money coming into that space. Do you think that's justified by the sort of fundamentals of the business? This is a good time to be an MGA. Uh, across the board, there's a good time to be an MGA, and it's not unrelated to the to the topic before. I think that uh, it is a way of um, disrupting the, the the value the existing distribution chain a bit. I think, um, but clearly at the top end, 
So when we go unicorn hunting and, and the Zegos and the bought by monies of this world, that's where the money is going because they have built models which are fundamentally different than anything came before. They can do real-time underwriting. They understand their customers. They can meld product sets to suit the particular customer bases that they've got. And they are, um, I would presume, all on journeys to become full-stack insurance companies at, at some point. So if you're a really big tech-enabled MGA, um, doing things slightly differently to the way they're doing done before, then it seems to be you're away. But you come all the way down to the bottom end, and there seems to be a lot of excitement at that end too. It, 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 there's a lot of consolidation in the MGA space. Um, and a lot of people uh, who are probably unable to initiate the sufficient levels of, of, of innovation themselves are looking very early on to pick up something that they like the look of in the form of an MGA with some nice tech and a nice idea. You've got an expression for it. Can't find a word quite as exciting as unicorns. So the best I can come up with acorns. And the acorns I see are where I mean, it doesn't have to just be MGA in short text, although that does still seem to be a very uh, area of high interest. You know, not surprising given some of the valuations where MGAs generally are sort of being valued like SaaS businesses just now based on the recurring revenue. SaaS? That's software as a service. Now, my point here is that investors love businesses where customers have to keep buying. Of course, the difference with software is there's a repeat revenue and potential for high margins because the cost of servicing a new customer is generally quite small, whereas MGAs are only collecting premium that then has to service claims and the marginal benefits don't scale quite so well. But that's a topic for another time. Now, back to me and my acorns. It sort of links a little bit back to our point earlier on about the funding, but we're certainly hearing from a number of organizations with quite deep pockets that are looking to invest or ultimately acquire companies where they're starting to get to enough revenue and enough even profitability in some cases that demonstrates they've pushed through beyond the two or three clients and are really starting to show some growth. But before that, they actually get the visibility that suddenly the prices you know, skyrocket. I, I, in practice, I don't know of any of those companies exist because I, you know, now with everything that's going on and partly we're probably responsible for this, you know, once a company starts to get to be able to generate three, four million of revenue, they've probably got some decent funding behind them. They start to get the publicity and therefore they start to get known. And then as soon as they start to go and look look for money, you know, the good ones are going to be acquired or invested in at a premium. So it, the, just like the mythical unicorn, those mythical acorns, you know, the buried treasures that people haven't yet identified I don't think in, in existing in short term. I think what is interesting, though, is some of the more established technology businesses that predate in short tech, where these companies are just, just getting on with it and making money and maybe got quite a specialized area, not too exciting necessarily, but actually are you know the one or the first or second in that field. Or, you know, if you look at what's coming in from outside of the space, it doesn't always have to be a big organization, someone like um uh Safegraph, who we had on stage, you know, recently, who are monitoring footfall traffic and actually can therefore measure what the activity is like at, in retail, which obviously is linked back to things like non-damaged business interruptions. So, I think ultimately, yeah, there are still opportunities out there, but they are really getting harder and harder for people to find if they're looking at investing early and not having to compete with people who've got you know, big pockets and investors who are, you know, demanding. Re- if not returns in their investment in the short term, at least distribution of their investments, so they doesn't not sitting in a bank somewhere earning you know, zero interest rates. If you were to pick the one thing that would really cheer me up, and it's still on the theme of MGA, it is 
the trend, and I can't think that I can call it a trend when I can only name two of them, but I know there are more on the way. Incumbents building MGAs from within. So, you know, one of the really exciting announcements of 2021 was FAVE, uh, the MGA under the Canopius uh, umbrella. I mean, effectively, some pretty smart data scientists there said we could do it better. Uh, they got the support of Canopius to do it. They have an in-house MGA, which uh, is was able to start, you know, brand new with brand new technology, brand new approach to data, does real-time underwriting, real-time portfolio analysis. It seems to me a fundamentally better way of doing some products that were until that moment in time you know, under some sort of delegated underwriting uh, facility. And I like this model of incumbents with the knowledge, with historical data sets, with a group of people who know what they're doing, building the models of the future. They have a natural advantage um, in that they can bring so much together if they get the tech right and the data right, which is which is clearly what some companies are starting to do. That model is seems to be much more the heart of what Lloyd should and can do because it can move faster and it's got much better access to distribution and it can rent versus build. Uh, so hopefully we'll see more of those coming out. But yeah, I think I, I think we've seen that with Vave, we've seen it with Brit, with Key. We know a couple more that are out there that are probably going to be more public soon. So that's well, we're heading in the right direction from the keeping you positive, Robin. Anything else that's um, you know we should we should be sort of looking at with, uh, if not enthusiasm, at least potential for enthusiasm in the next few months? Look, I've got the advantage of, a, of having spoken to 15 gurus. So, so when I come up with my, what do I, when I look ahead and what do I get excited about, there is big M&A opportunity. That M&A opportunity isn't just InsureTech to InsureTech, because I think increasingly uh, there are ecosystems being built around the big policy admin system providers, big insurance services companies. They're starting to create interesting ecosystems and opportunities in which uh, a huge variety of services converge. I think that's an exciting thing. I think it's overdue, and and I didn't expect necessarily the policy admin providers to be part of that, but I think they'll lead the way on in you know in in that area. Uh, and and overall, the sense was that there'll be lots more money, but probably less money as a result of. Uh, the complete lack of excitement of lemonade and root and some of these sort of post post flotation uh, valuations, which means that money from outside the industry has tightened up, and um, most people think that uh, insurtech will get less money next year, or at least the valuations will be less frothy than they were this year. There are encouraging signs that there are models emerging, um, both ecosystem and this sort of greenfield from within that will replace what was a sort of insure tech, let's all go and have a pizza and some Shiraz and, and hear some kids talk about data science and, and, and how they're going to change the world. Maybe more thoughtful money. I mean, I think ultimately it's no bad thing that you know, Lemonade kind of soared up. It's still above its IPO price. Hippo is below its IPO price. Root is like, tanked since then i mean some of that has been caught up in the the overall market you know the sort of uh, the bleak winter of spacs but nonetheless that was probably they were coming out too high and to some extent probably took some of the money that should have been deployed elsewhere at some other solutions that were actually really pushing the boundaries a little bit more but interesting you mentioned those those policy administration systems because it's just looking at some data from pitchbook about who's been making the most acquisitions in the last five years. And interestingly, Gallagher, of course, a broker, comes out top 
with seven acquisitions. And then they list Insurity, Applied Systems, Majesco, Hub, and Zywave, all of whom are producing you know, technology in that space between four and five acquisitions out there. And I think you know, the, the good thing about that, for back to our original discussion about who's funding the insurtechs or the early stage companies, is that it actually makes it a lot easier to get to market if you can deploy your, your analytics, you know, whether it's through an API or the analytics being embedded in the platform. I mean, you lose the direct relationship with the client, which is a problem if you want to grow. So you're sort of trading off speed to market versus understanding about how your analytics are really being used. But I do think we're going to see more of that happening. And we've seen Guidewire you know, more recently acquire Hazard Hub. I don't think that's going to be the last one we're going to see. So I think it's a double-edged sword on that one. I think it's encouraging in the sense that money's coming in. It gives people better ways to do the distribution. But I think we'd all have hoped for maybe some more you know, original companies that had started up and maybe not just through the sort of hype of the market get funding and success, but really start to show some traction in terms of how they're going to change the business by actually doing things differently as opposed to just people still investing in the hope they're going to do things differently. I want to give you my favorite prediction. It was from Joanne Cusco, who's head of um, transformation at uh, Mapfre. He said that one of Mapfre's projects for next year will be to get their heads around. Um, how you ensure the metaverse. Uh, and he says, in a world where people start to put their digital assets in the metaverse, if we are doing our job as insurer, we again have to work out how you ensure digital assets in the metaverse. He says, I don't know. That is something we will set about working on in 2022. And I thought to myself, now, there's a man talking my language. That's what I want to hear. And let's see whether you can ensure the meta- metaverse at the end of 2022. We might laugh, but don't forget Bitcoin were valued at about $10 five years ago. So maybe if you fund the, the, the next metaverse insurance company with your NFTs, Robin, you might be, you, you too might be up there with the kind of heady um, companies in, uh, in the world of IPOs. But you know, who knows? Not too late, I would suspect. We can't finish this little chat without talking a little bit about us. Um, you, and you've probably got the metrics, Matthew. I mean, we, you know, even if InsureTech haven't had a, um, a brilliant year, according to me, at least, uh, we have. So I just looked at the, the data. We have run, since kind of lockdown, we moved from live events to virtual events. We've, we've run 47 different events, digital events, uh, with an average of around 250 people attending those. So people still seem to turn up and hear us talking, which is nice. Uh, we also, of course, we were, we were pretty quickly out of the the gate to do our live events. So we had our summer party in July, uh, which was sponsored by Charles Taylor. So it was good to get that off the ground. And then we've done uh, another four live events and actually had you know, close to 200 people turning up and supporting us. So I think we, well, we know we had to work a bit harder and people made a decision quite late in the day with all the variety going on in terms of what's happening. But great to get back out there and doing those. We've had over 125,000 downloads to the podcasts. We've issued eight reports last year. We have be bringing in number 11, 11th person onto the team in January, which is good. So uh, we're actually able to put something back into the, the world ourselves, which is quite satisfying. You know, we're generating revenue thanks to all the support and actually hiring people and giving them jobs. And hopefully, you know, that maybe that would be my uh, prediction for next year is that you and I become, um, if not redundant, at least less critical in the functioning of Instec because we've got such great people joining us in there who are you know, bringing their own skills into it and sometimes proving that Although insurance looks difficult from the outside, when you actually get beneath the surface and understand what all the language is, it's not really that difficult to understand. I think on a positive upbeat, hopefully, you know, the generally 
you know, we're getting good support and we've got a great team to be able to support us, supporting all of the people that have been uh, investing in us as members and clients. My New Year's resolution for 2022 is to play more golf. So that will go very neatly with the idea uh, that we keep building the team and that bit by bit they start to, to, um, to take over the mantle. But also the rat is, is actually back on the, on the bird table. So I, I don't know if you've got some little closing comments to make before you go, but, but I, I feel compelled to lock and load any minute now. No, I think you have to do your bit for the uh, the the bird life of East Anglia and go and shoo away the rat in the most aggressive manner you can. We might get some complaints about this. We have to be terribly careful. Are you allowed to shoot rats? If your shooting is anything like my golf aim, I'd have no problem about pointing a rifle at the at the rat and just the noise scaring it off, but having no hope of the actual the bullet making uh, hitting its target. So anyway, you go go and scare away your rat. <laughs> Leave it with that. Let's wish all of our members and, and, and the people who support us a happy festivities and, and see them all in the new year. Look forward to working with everybody. Yeah, and, and stay safe. And yeah, hopefully back to face-to-face again at some point in January. I don't think we're going to, I can't believe we're going to have to be locked down again. Anyway, I think that's us and we're done. Thanks. Thanks, Matthew. See you soon. Well, you've heard enough from us, so I'm going to wrap up there. Tell us what you're missing in your lives and let's see if we can help. Matthew Grant on LinkedIn, any of us, hello at instec.london and the website bulging with information, www.instec.london. <laughs>